This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, Hamilton's public health department is warning about mumps after noticing a growing number of cases. Of course, we've heard about this in Toronto as well. Uh, fewer than five have been identified so far here, but with the close proximity to Toronto where 37 people have been confirmed, uh, obviously that is raising eyebrows. To talk about all of this, Tammy Packer is with us, Director of Medicine and Head of Service for Newborn Care, St. Joseph Hospital, and is with us now. Hello, Tammy. How are you today? I'm fine, thanks. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Tammy, why are we seeing uh, outbreaks? I remember when I was a kid, we'd talk about mumps. It seems we haven't talked about it in a long time, and now we're hearing about it. How come? I think it's probably somewhat to do with our immunization pattern in Ontario. Um, I'm, we've recently, as family docs, received yesterday from Public Health a communique about this, which I'm relying heavily on right now to communicate with you. Um, essentially, Children that were born up until around the year 2000 received one dose of measles, mumps, and rubella immunization. And sometime around the year 2000, we introduced a second dosage. I'm, I'm sort of sitting at 2000 because I know when my own kids were born and they received one dose. Right. And people that were born before 1970 uh, did not receive this vaccine at all. But interestingly, they are the group that seem to be most protected because they were actually exposed to these live viruses. Uh, so we now have a group of kids who are reaching adulthood, many of whom have received one dosage, not two, and we're trying to update as best we can to ensure that all the people that require that second dose are, are receiving it. And I think that, in fact, speaks to your 55% quoted rate. So when should people get that second dose? I think that's a challenge for us in the community as care providers. We're pretty reliant on the school system to identify those who are deficient. And it's only in recent years that the schools have been pulling out the kids who haven't actually received that second dosage. Um, now, moving forward, we're in a much better position because any of our kids going off to school are identified by grade one as being deficient for that second dosage, and we're catching it. Uh, but it's only been in recent years that we have that mechanism, so it's up to us when we see you in the office. When you come in with your cough, cold, um, or any other knee ailment, shoulder, etc., that we take it upon ourselves to say, gee, this is somebody who hasn't had the second dosage, good opportunity to discuss and perhaps administer. Uh, so moving forward, uh, the kids and such coming up, they are in better shape or will be in fine shape for this. Is that correct or am I assuming they too much They are in much better shape right. with the caveat of those who choose not to immunize. All right. How big of a discussion has that become recently? <laughs> well, I heard your header as I was listening and thought, gee, this isn't what I signed up for today. <laughs> um, I think it's an increasing issue. It's certainly one that the press has brought to the fore lately. Um, it's something that I know in my own practice uh, comes up regularly, and, and regularly would be almost with every family that we're discussing immunization. Um, and I think that's part of the information age. I think it's more good than bad that mm -hmm. families are more aware and question, but there is a, a strong threat of non-immunizers in our community. So what do they say to you? What do they ask you? Those people yeah, I think that they in. ask, generally they ask very wise questions um, about what are the pros and cons of, of immunizing my child. I think many families do recognize that immunization isn't so much about the individual, but more about the community. Uh, we're not doing it to protect ourselves per se, but we need a certain percentage of the community to be well protected to ensure that we don't have outbreaks. So stressing that point is important. Um, many people have been 
made aware of various stories like the Jenny McCarthy story to do with uh, the rubella vaccine. And there's a lot of information on the web, some of which is credible and some of which isn't that we that we need to provide uh, adequate background to so that people can make wise decisions. Uh, you, you know, you, br- you you brought up the, the Jenny McCarthy story. It, it just seems amazing to me, and obviously we've talked about this years ago when this first all surfaced, that one report that had been debunked and then publicized uh, through this whole scenario has seemed to counteract what everything else since then has come out and said. It, it's amazing how that one story has, has just gained so much notoriety. It wasn't entirely one story. I think she publicized a story, but there had been a bit of a rogue study in in the UK uh, led by a group of practitioners that had been widely disseminated. So that, when parlayed in, you know, amongst the lay press to the average person, looks good at first glance. So what it takes a while to decipher. Yeah. So what do you say to parents who ask you these questions? What's your answer? Um, What advice do you give to, to them? What I try and do is inform as best I can. I really do practice from the perspective of we're all entitled to make informed choices, and I think that as practitioners we need to support that view. Uh, I refer them to the uh, Public Health Ontario website that provides additional information on all immunizations. Um, I also have reading matter posted in the office, and I guess with those who are leaning towards non-immunizing, and I do look after some families who choose not to immunize, I reinforce the magnitude of illness that their individual child could succumb to. And I think that that's, I mean, we now have mumps to add to the list, but in the past I've really relied on pointing out what whooping cough can do and what measles can do, because both of those can be devastating and even fatal. And I make sure that they understand that. And then if they're accepting of those risks, then I have to lean on and there is impact to the community for those kids and adults around you. Um, But ultimately people are free to make their own decisions. Uh, what do we know now? What don't we know now? What did we know then? What d- didn't we know then? <laughs> uh, you know, because it seems way back when, you know, if you ask your grandparents, they'll go, what are you, nuts? Of course you got to get vaccinated. Uh, so obviously we've learned more. Uh, we're certainly exposed to more. But if you talk to that generation, they might think else otherwise. I think some of this may be a response to the rapid increase in the number of vaccinations that infants and toddlers are receiving. Hmm. Uh, my kids were born in the 90s, and kids of that generation received a little more than half the number of immunizations that were given in the first 18 months now uh, because of advances and because of uh, improvements in in the science of immunization. We've also improved dramatically in the ability to immunize without significant side effects. We used to hear routinely from parents with children with high fevers and prolonged upset after immunization. And I can't recall when I last received a call about that. So tolerance has improved. Um, And then there's a a questioning, which is to some extent information age-based and just bona fide. There's a movement in care uh, towards a more natural approach. And, And there's a large component of society who are looking for I guess you could say return to a more peaceful, quiet time uh, with more natural remedies. And and there's a broad-based support for that, and they have a very, very strong media-based presence, and they're very good at informationalizing. Hmm, interesting. Mumps, how dangerous? Um, So I have to say I'm old, and I've never seen mumps in my life. 
I did see a patient the other day who's one that's being evaluated for potential mumps, um, so it certainly brought my awareness level up. I think it's uh, what's sort of driving this boat is the NHL team that's had a high prevalence of mumps and the association of something we call orchitis, which is a very fancy word for inflammation of the testicles. Um, and that can happen in postpubertal males who, who end up with acute mumps. I remember um, hearing that when I was a kid, that if you don't get the vaccination, that's going to happen to you. I think my mother used that to put the fear of God in me. Uh, yeah, how dangerous yeah. is that? Well, I can't quote you how frequently it happens. Um, but there's an association with potential impact on fertility, and that's something that I think right. most of us take fairly seriously. Mumps itself, the illness, it, usually people show with fever. They may feel tired and achy like any other virus, headaches. They may or may not have the runny nose, cough, and cold that we all have right now. Um, and, and I guess the hallmark is the swelling and tenderness of, of some of their salivary glands. And usually it's the parotid gland, which is sort of at the, the back side of the face, one on each side. But it can also affect the glands that are under your tongue um, and under your jawbone. Um, so that would be sort of the classic scenario. It usually passes within the course of about a week um, and people get better. But it's the ongoing consequences of the orchitis that I think generates the fear. So how concerned are you of this? There's, what, fewer than five cases in Hamilton now? Uh, the report we received yesterday says less than five. So I can't speak to the exact number. Public health would be mm-hmm. the, the source for that. Um it's whether there's a potential for there to be many more. Um, it is a contagious virus, and you know it is spread through droplets. So, if you think you have it, we're supposed to be counseling people to do what they call self self isolate, meaning stay in your house until the results are back. Um, and uh, that's about as much as we know. But you're dealing with a physician workforce, most of whom have never seen it. Uh, what, that's interesting. What, uh, what happens if someone gets this in a school? How quickly could this spread? Um, that I'd have to defer to, again, the public health department. It depends on the precautions that are taken and how quickly it's recognized. But because it's passed simply through droplets when people sneeze and cough and don't wash their hands, all those issues set up a fertile breeding ground. Um, So hand hygiene and removing the person that's sick are your two best options at preventing spread. So advice to parents at this point would be what from you? (laughs) I dare say don't call your family doctor. No, uh, in all seriousness. Because you know they'll all call at once. (laughs) Tomorrow. Um, I I think that if your child is fevered, and, and it's actually, if we think about this logically, it's not likely to be the children because the group of kids that are six and under are the best vaccinated and the best protected. Yeah, good point. So it's the the young adults and the adults um, born after those who were born after 1970 are uh, less protected than those who were born before. So it's the younger generation, but not the kids. And if you have a fever and swelling in your face or under your neck, it's probably a good idea to see your family doctor. Hmm. Tammy Packer has been with us, Director of Medicine and Head of Service for Newborn Care at St. Joseph's Hospital. Tammy, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. And, and I guess washing your hands always helps, doesn't it? What, hand hygiene is definitely your best defense. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, the final design and environmental report for Hamilton's LRT ready to go and is heading uh, to a council meeting on March 28th. 
What happens after that? How crucial is this meeting? Joining us, oh, first we want to hear from uh, uh, Paul Johnson. He is a director, LRT Project Coordination for the City of Hamilton. He was on with Bill Kelly this morning. Uh, let's play a couple of uh, clips here before we bring in Ryan. Uh, this one is on uh, key elements of the design. So in terms of the final design, no, but it really is uh, locking down the key elements of the project as it, as it goes forward. We did this in 2011, got approval, but of course the project is a little bit different. There were elements in 2011 we hadn't done yet, mainly the operations, maintenance, and storage facility. And then there's been some modifications to the project along the way. So this is an update. It's not brand new. It's actually uh, called an addendum to what we did in 2011. Uh, so these are the differences and the things that have happened along the way in this project, updating that and moving it forward. Good news is that uh, all the things we found last time uh, remain and are easily mitigated through the, through the process of the design. And the new piece, which, of course, we had to do a lot of work on, was the operations, maintenance, and storage facility. And, again, uh, what's come back through the environmental assessment process is that uh, that piece of the project uh, can move forward as well. Uh, Paul Johnson on with uh, Bill Kelly this morning. Uh, Bill asked him what has changed, what has changed, uh, what has changed, and what has stayed the same with LRT. Now, with the descoping of the A-line portion of the LRT, we're running along the same corridors, just shorter east to west. So it's uh, running along the same way. Our alignment's a little bit different, uh, as we mentioned last May. Uh, more center running of this and segregating it in the middle of the road to keep uh, this as rapid and reliable transit. But uh, that is really, you know, still running down the same corridor. So from an environmental assessment process, uh, the really big change for us was the fact that uh, we didn't have in the last EA uh, a site location for the operations, maintenance, and storage facility. We now have that in the Longwood and Aberdeen area, and so we did a lot of work on that site. And what is needed from council at this point? Council doesn't approve uh, environmental assessments that the ministry does. So what we're looking for is support of council to uh, have staff submit this to the Ministry of Environment and Climate Change. That will start a 30-day review process uh, provincially, so people can, uh, from the public, can obviously write uh, provincially and talk about provincially significant issues that they feel, if they do feel we didn't address any of those. And then the minister uh, uh, himself, in this case, uh, has, a, has a review of that. So this is a regulatory process. We do these types of things all the time. Transit projects have their own process that we we followed, but this is uh, just like every, every other EA. So we're looking for the support, but it is a key milestone. This kicks into our ability to look at more detailed design and get to the RFP stage for this project. All right, that uh, is Paul Johnson, Director, LRT Project Coordination for the City of Hamilton. Let's bring in Ryan McGrill, editor, Raise the Hammer, and he is with us now. Hello, Ryan. How are you doing today? I'm good, Scott. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for taking the time to join us, Ryan. We always uh, we always appreciate this. What are your thoughts uh, with this meeting coming up in March 28th? How are you feeling about all this? Well, uh, I mean, I'm I'm feeling a little nervous because uh, I always feel a little bit nervous about these things. But uh, I mean, really, this should be a wholly uncontroversial meeting. This 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 should be uh, essentially council signing off on the work that they requested Metrolinx and city staff to complete. Uh, remember, Council submitted an environmental assessment to the province back in 2011. All we're doing with this is we're updating it. It's, it's an amendment to it, as, as Paul mentioned in his clip. So all this is doing is just updating a few of the key pieces that were missing from the original one. Uh, specifically, uh, again, as Paul mentioned, the uh, storage and maintenance facility, they sort of deferred that back in 2011 to they were going to do it in an amendment. Well, now that's done. So, all, so basically, council was asked uh, staff and directed Metrolinx to do this work. Now the work is done. 
all council has to do is agree to it. Whether it happens that way remains to be seen. Uh, is this another chance to play politics? Are you worried about delays? Well, I mean, there's every every chance is a chance to play politics. Yeah. And, uh, certainly, if council refuses to um, to receive this and 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 direct staff to submit it, then uh, we sort of enter a kind of an unknown situation because then the project can't move forward until the environmental assessment has been completed and approved. And uh, the city and Metrolinx are co-proponents on the project, so they both have to sign off on submitting this thing. So I really, really hope that council will be responsible and mature and do their jobs properly and recognize that that they're receiving this because they directed staff to prepare it uh, and that they will act you know, as they committed with, with Metrolinx in a spirit of good faith in order to move this project forward. Um, there may be some grandstanding, but I really hope that at the end of the day, they'll vote to approve this and recognize that this is going to the next level now at the province of oversight. Uh, so do you think the majority have accepted that this is, as you mentioned, the final stage as we st- as we prepare to move forward and then collect bids for this? Um, do you still get the feeling that the majority is still behind this? I honestly, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm waiting to find out on March 28th how they're going to vote on this. It's it's up in the air, certainly. Uh, there's been a lot of noises being made by various councillors, uh, you know, a lot of expressions of concern and uncertainty of various kinds. Um, I hope that they'll take the time to read through this, you know, to really receive the responses they're getting from Paul Johnson and from other staff in a in a good faith and, and good spirit, and, uh, and, and just really kind of do their jobs honestly and in good faith, because that's really what this comes down to. You know, there's absolutely no good reason not to move forward with this. Nothing significant has changed since Council voted 45, 50 times in the past to support LRT and move forward. Nothing. The only thing that has changed is that we're closer to the finish line now. Hmm. That's the only thing that's changed. And we all know that's when Hamilton really starts to get cold feet. Uh, are, are there more questions that they need answers to? Does this does this answer their questions? This answers any project as large as a billion dollar LRT plan. There's going to it's going it's a long process to get to a final design and a final implementation. And as we've been moving along, the number of questions that don't have answers has been falling steadily. This uh, environmental assessment answers more of the questions. Uh, Beyond that, there'll be a master agreement that the city and Metrolinx will sign. Uh, And then after that, once um, a bid is submitted to actually uh, finance, build, operate, and maintain this thing, then the final decisions about how the operating costs are going to play out, that will be answered at that time. But I think it's really important to remember that Metrolinx is overseeing this project and the province is investing a billion dollars in Hamilton. They are not setting us up to fail. They're setting us up to succeed. And so we don't know exactly what that operating agreement is going to look like, but we have to have a certain amount of trust that they're going to negotiate with us in good faith in order to deliver an agreement that we can live with and that and that's going to work successfully for us and, and, and strengthen the city and not leave it weaker. Do you think this is the last major hurdle? Well, beyond this, like I said, the last part after this is the master agreement. And then and that's, you know, really kind of more of a formality than anything else. I mean, as far as political interference. Uh, once the master agreement is signed, then this thing should be pretty much clear to go ahead. The final part, I mean, of course, this is Hamilton, so nothing is ever really over until it's over. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the, I think the, the, the last 
really big milestone is going to be when um, an RFP is put out and a consortium is picked, you know, is actually chosen as a successful proponent to build this thing. Once that contract gets signed, now we're going to be in a situation where if we change our minds and cancel the contract, we're going to have to pay out cancellation fees to that corporation. Right. And so it'll be like a gas plant situation all over again. I'm pretty sure it's fair to say that nobody wants that. And so once we get that contract signed, there's pretty much no going back at that point. Uh, are you still feel? Obviously, this project has taken a long time just to get to this point. Are you still feeling uh, strong opposition? Is, is, is it as strong as it was at the beginning of all of this? I think the opposition is, I mean, the sense I get is that the, the opposition is small, but, uh, but quite strident. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and the thing that I've really noticed uh, in it is that I've been trying to understand why some people are against this project. Obviously, I want, you know, it would be ideal if everybody in the city agrees with it. That's never going to happen in the real world. But I want to try and understand. And the one thing I've noticed is that among people who support the project, and it's not downtown versus the suburbs, it's not old versus young, it's not left versus right. It's people who are optimistic and hopeful about the city Hmm. versus people who are cynical and pessimistic and resentful about the city. I find that the strongest LRT opposition comes from people who don't think Hamilton deserves nice things. You know, it's a train to nowhere. That is that is such uh, an insult to the, you know, to, to the many tens of thousands of people living directly along this corridor. Hamilton isn't nowhere. Downtown Hamilton isn't nowhere. McMaster isn't nowhere. The East End isn't nowhere. And to have that dismissive attitude, oh, it's going to be just bums and lowlifes using it. That that reveals a certain contempt, a kind of a civic self-loathing for this city. And, and you uh, know, you're gonna, and you know this as, as much as anybody. You're gonna get that no matter what the project is, whether it's a stadium, whether it's this, that, or the other. You're you're going to get that. Oh, exactly. Yeah, there's nothing specific about LRT that yeah. attracts that. You know, I mean, people who don't think Hamilton deserves. Uh, to be invested in are going to oppose any significant project. You have to you have to feel though considering what has been happening with Hamilton in the last 5 years or so that those people are very much in the minority and certainly not as vocal as they once were. Well, I think they are in the minority uh, as to how vocal they are you know, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, good uh, point. What, what that, we'll see how that sounds in the next few weeks. But but it really it feels like a rearguard action. It's kind of a desperate attempt to stop Hamilton from making a transition to the city it's going to be in the future. And and I you know I believe that optimism and hopefulness will win out. Well, you know, again, we feel we feel that w- with growing pains and, and the city getting larger. I mean, it was ten fifteen years ago we were all dreaming about this sort of interest in the city. We were all dreaming about this potential development in the city. And now that it's finally got to the point where it's here, it's Hamilton's turn, then there's people that uh, it's as if they almost don't want to succeed. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think there's a, I think that's a fair statement to make. There's, uh, I mean, any change, change is scary. There's yeah. no question about yeah. it. All, every change is scary. Even a, even a crisis that leads to, uh, to a much better place, whether in your personal life or in the life of a community, it's always frightening to step into the unknown. Uh, I would say this project, of all the large, scary projects, we understand this really, really well. We've got over 400 cities that have LRT systems. We've got a pretty good idea at this point how they work, how they can succeed, and and how we can mitigate the challenges that come along the way. How do you think we'll look back at this 20 years from now, 25 years from now? I think if the project, you know, if everything goes well, we'll look back at this as the, the crucial turning point for Hamilton. 
if somehow we manage to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, we'll look back at one, yet another example of how Hamilton sabotaged its own potential. Mm. You know, I think back to 1981, when the city turned down an LRT system, uh, Vancouver picked up that exact same technology, became their SkyTrain, and it's been massively, transformatively successful for that city. We could have had that, and we turned it down. You know, I hope, I hope that council will see themselves uh, as having a duty to their own legacy, to their own future, not to be the council that's remembered for having screwed us up again. Again, keyword. Uh, Ryan McGreal has been with us, editor of Raise the Hammer, the final design and environmental report for Hamilton's LRT Ready and uh, a meeting set for March 28th. Ryan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. I really appreciate the time. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, the British government, we've certainly talked lots about Brexit over the uh, uh, course of of, uh, the last several months. And obviously, as things are slowly starting to move forward, uh, they are, uh, I guess, taking the first steps that have to be taken and and consensus that is needed in order to move forward uh, with a a hard exit from Brexit or with Brexit from the uh, European Union. Uh, Oddly enough, at the same time, uh, the Scottish First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, has said that, uh, you know what, it's time for another referendum in Scotland, which they just had prior to all of this, prior to Brexit, and Scotland voted to stay in the European Union. Uh, sorry, in the UK. Uh, but that was when the UK was staying It's 900 THML. I'm Scott Thompson. The UK wants outside of the European Union. Then all of a sudden, Scotland doesn't want to be in the UK. Can you do all of this at once? Should it all be done at once? Is it just adding to the nightmare? To, call, to talk more about all of this, Callie Israel is with us, uh, Associate Professor, Department of History, University of Michigan, and was present, actually, during the first Scottish referendum and is with us now. Hello, Callie. How are you today? Hello. I'm here. How Th- are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. So what was it like in Scotland during the first refer- referendum? What was, it, what was the buzz in the, in the country? It was really quite extraordinary as an experience because there was so much engagement uh, that developed really quite rapidly. That is, if one had been there a year ahead of time, you wouldn't have expected how much um, engagement, how much conversation, and genuinely civil conversation a lot of the time. As you perhaps know, and some of your listeners know, the voter turnout in the actual referendum was north of 85%, mm-hmm. um, which speaks to the fact that people really were thinking, talking, and um, caring about the question, no matter which side they ended up voting on. So as an example of you know, people really engaging with politics. It was amazing. I've never seen anything like it. You said lots of debate. What about divisiveness? Yeah, there was certainly some. And as is not untypical these days, probably the worst of it was online, you know, meaning name-calling and no. mean-spiritedness. Um, but, of course, in day-to-day life, um, people were actually much nicer than that. I am sure that some folks decided that there were conversations with family members or neighbors that they simply weren't going to have until after the vote. 
Um, but there were a lot of ways in which people engaged in the process trying to create spaces of conversation. Um, just as an example, you know, churches holding forums for people just to talk about their questions, their mm. ideas, their concerns. Um, there were town meetings um, in a lot of places. There were a number of ways in which people tried to keep forward in their head that they were going to continue to live with each other no matter what happened on the day of the referendum. What was life like after the vote? And was there talk of the UK leaving the European Union prior to this? Oh, dear. Yeah. This is one of the... Did that influence the vote? Yes. Because one of the claims made by the No campaign in 2014 was that people should not vote for independence because if you voted to remain in the UK, that meant that you could remain in the European Union. That turns out not to be the case. Um, There's a larger issue, perhaps, of what people believed at the time and no longer believe. But on the specific issue of the EU, an argument for voting to remain in the UK was that meant remaining in the European Union, and of course, things have changed since. So obviously, back then, the vote to stay in the UK was a vote to stay in the European Union. On the Uh, part of some voters, yes. Right. Obviously, that didn't turn out to be the case. Has that made this even more divisive? If this vote was to be held tomorrow, would would the outcome be the same? I don't know if it were held tomorrow. Um, I think that... Um, that some people genuinely have shifted their views over the last two years. But on the issue of of divisiveness, um, it is true that a lot of promises were made during the last campaign, you know, for for Scots to remain in the UK that have not been kept. And so I, I would say in some respects there's more divisiveness now than there was, you know, the day after the referendum in 2014 because there there has been increasing frustration, of which the, the Brexit vote is obviously one example. The polls are saying that things right now are about 50-50, but we've seen things shift rapidly in the past. So, and no referendum is going to be held for another year, clearly. So how does this uh, turmoil in Scotland affect the deal that May is trying to do regarding Brexit? How does this complicate the deal, the exit? Well, it certainly doesn't um, doesn't help her in presenting the British people as a united front with, with shared values who back her government. I mean, it certainly doesn't help any kind of negotiating position that uses any rhetoric of what the British people want, because quite clearly the British people don't all think with the same brain. Um, I think for I think there are some very complicated issues about whether some European nations would see an independent Scotland as a valuable base for continued business and finance operations. That being said, does the EU want to not let them in? I mean, would that send the right message? If the EU's rules seem to say that Scotland would have to apply. However, there are some signals that say that some EU members would 
be willing to make that happen rapidly, and other EU members would be more hostile to it. Um, it, I mean, of course, what makes this maddening in a lot of ways is that there are internal politics in every EU nation. Mm-hmm. There are things happening inside Germany or inside France, to take an obvious example, that make it very hard to say what the EU position would be six months or a year from now. Uh, can the UK do both at the same time? How, I... She said that she, uh, May said that she will not agree to this. Does it matter? Who's driving the bus here? Right. In theory, the Scottish government has to request the the process of calling a referendum. Um, And that's essentially what Nicola Sturgeon signaled yesterday she intends to do, that is, begin the process of calling a referendum. In practice, though, it looks really bad for the British government, or you know, Theresa May specifically, to say, I will not allow Scots to have a referendum or to make a decision for themselves. I can't see that resting well with them. No. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, my. So what happens now? Where The, the fact that... Uh, uh, Nicola Sturgeon brought this up. Now, what's her plan? What does she hope to force here? Well, no one in Scotland, no matter how ardently on the pro-independence side, would have chosen to have to do this now. Um, something that is, I think, really widely accepted is that after the last few years, the 2014 referendum, the 2015 general election, and then last year, Brexit, Scottish voters are pretty tired of being in high-stakes, intensive campaigns all the time. However, Theresa May seems to have pushed the issue um, by largely refusing to accept any negotiation with Scotland. Or at least that, that seems to be Nicola Sturgeon's position that the British government um, left her no option but to restart the conversation on independence. Uh, What you may know, but I'll just remind your listeners, Theresa May was scheduled to trigger Article 50 that would begin the Brexit process yesterday, Mm -hmm. and then she didn't do it. So Nicola Sturgeon was anticipating May doing something that May then didn't do. So Are how confused enough? <laughs> it's easy to follow. What's hard to follow is what the next step is. Exactly. What? <laughs> so where does this leave both? Where does this leave May and Sturgeon? It leaves May in, I think, a quite tricky position because she doesn't seem to have anticipated that Sturgeon would pull the trigger. Um, It leaves Sturgeon, of course, in a different tricky position in that a lot of people would have preferred that this not happen for another year or two. Um, And it does mean that people who are opposed to Scottish independence are are speaking out, are mobilizing, are saying, no, we don't. It's not just we don't want another referendum. We don't want to leave the U.K. So there are political costs for both of them. 
Is this is this Sturgeon trying to force May to back out of Brexit and maybe have some uh, I don't know another referendum to see if this is really where we want to go? I mean, is this trying to force other political hands? I think that um, backing out of Brexit entirely is probably not Nicholas Sturgeon's plan. But many people, and this is you know south of the tweet as well, many folks in England as well as in the other nations, would have wanted much more negotiation. Um, as you may know, the House of Lords tried to intervene in a couple of ways in the last couple of weeks. There are a lot of people who would have liked to slow down the process or um, negotiate a softer Brexit. Um, and it's... Uh, it's Theresa May and the Conservative government's refusal to do that that you know, is part of this larger picture, not just of May not negotiating with Scotland, but not really negotiating with anyone. What's the advantages and disadvantages of that? It increases political instability considerably, um, I would say, as a, as a disadvantage across the four nations. I think for Northern Ireland, it's a disaster um, that, that to not know, you know, with so many unresolved questions, um, for the process to be pushing ahead as rapidly as it is, is I think a disaster. Wow. Um, insofar as it's an advantage, I suppose, for people who are keenly pro-Brexit, they are saying, this is what we voted for, we want it to happen. You know, so there are political advantages for people um, who were on that side in, in the referendum last summer. So would so this alter May's plan at all? We can't tell. Yeah. <laughs> um, she didn't trigger Article 50 yesterday. Right. Um, so in that sense, yes, it seems to have um, altered something, but she is still saying, you know, end of the month. So... Uh, but she is, she has not really shown any willingness to to do anything but hard Brexit thus far. Um, uh, should she be more open-minded since this is uncharted territory? It is uncharted territory, yeah. Uh, I think it would be good if she were more open-minded. One of the things that is underlying this, and yeah, so I'll, I'll spell it out, Insofar as she seems to be giving the message, we don't care what Scotland wants. England drives the bus. Yeah. I think that's politically reckless. Uh, do Brits wish they could move back the clock and have another kick at this can? I think quite a few people do. I mean, but I don't think we, we have great numbers on that. There are some polls... Uh, that do show people who voted for Brexit saying, oh, well, I didn't think it would pass, so I, would, you know, I wouldn't do it again. Right. Um, but I don't think we have very solid numbers on that. Yeah. How long will the instability last? How long will this confusion last? Um, years. Yeah. You mean certainly several years, um, possibly you know, possibly only several years. Things could, you know, indeed sort themselves out. Um, you know, w- in terms of the the UK Scottish relationship, that you know that could settle relatively quickly. By which I mean, you know, three to five years rather than um, a longer timeline. But I think that the issue of um, 
Britain's relationship to the EU and the economic consequences of withdrawal as well as um, you know, the human consequences in terms of people losing losing the right of domicile, the right to work, the right to study. Yeah. Will this be better for anyone, either the UK or the EU? Do you, like it's going to be a long yeah, it's going to be a long time before something positive comes out of this, won't it? Be years? Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Um, and of course, I've, yeah, I'm a scholar, but I also have un, unquestionably some biases here. I think Brexit was um, a mistake in terms of how rapidly. The referendum took place, and um, and then how rapidly things are proceeding since. So it is hard for me to see an optimistic resolution anytime soon. Uh, obviously, uh, this was a protest vote. We talked about this when Brexit was happening, um, and then we've seen the same sort of thing happen in the in the United States with the election of President mm-hmm. Trump. Uh, is that the way we're going? Are we learning from these lessons? I don't know if we're learning or not, but I would point out that Scotland has really massive um, and ongoing problems of of poverty, of unemployment, of ill health. Of you know, if you're looking at things that that seem to be you know, markers of a class disadvantages, you know, so that people are voting out of economic concerns um, and are voting. You know, for change because of discontent or a sense of neglect. If you look at Scotland demographically, there are plenty of folks who are poor. There are people who are unemployed. There are people who are in areas that used to be thriving and aren't anymore. They still didn't vote for Brexit. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can't just look at protest votes in terms of economic issues. I think you also have to look at the, you know, the political culture and the the climate, so to speak. Um, and in Scotland, there was simply much less immigrant immigrant blaming and European blaming. Um, there was a much stronger positive sense mm-hmm. of the EU, um, and that says to me that you know protest votes aren't automatic. You know, they don't necessarily say let's burn the place down because we're not happy about something that is the way it is now. Um, it is possible for people to have um, more complicated civil conversations. How does this move forward, specifically with the relationship between Scotland and the UK? Well, what's happening right now is clearly a lot of a lot of folks are you know, gearing up for what will be a long campaign. Um, what I hope doesn't happen is um, n- negativity and name-calling. I mean, I hope that, the, that what happened last time of people respecting differences of opinion continues. I'm sorry to say, though, that I do already see and have seen for a while in England an increase of anti-Scottishness um, and a sort of sense of, oh, those Scots, why won't they just sit down and shut up? I'm sorry to say that that is out there. I hope that doesn't increase, because what that could mean is that even if Scotland voted to remain in the UK, 
some very negative stuff would be left behind. From an economic standpoint, how long will it take to get over this? To get over Brexit? Yeah. I mean, for these deals to even be negotiated and then to start working, I mean, you're looking at a lost decade, are you not? Yeah. Yeah, and there are, of course, differences in different sectors of the economy. You know, there are some, some industries that might be able to you know, to, to sort things out sooner than others. But, you know, but if you look at things like the drinks industry, I mean, to take as an example, mm-hmm. an area in which Scotland is strong, the loss of the European market for Scottish whiskey, Scottish um, gin, Scottish drinks in general, mm-hmm. it's hard to see that getting sorted out very quickly. Wow, what a mess. What a mess. <laughs> Uh, Callie Israel has been with us, Associate Professor, Department of History, University of Michigan. Obviously, uh, there's still going to be lots of uh, rough water ahead before things uh, smooth out. Uh, The British government, uh, given the powers to start the first steps towards uh, Brexit, uh, just as uh, Scotland is talking about firing up another referendum. Callie, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks very much. I hope it's been helpful. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.